Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. This episode is the first of a two-parter that Wes McAdams recorded with Stephen Cuffell on the topic of justice. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I am so excited to be joined today by Stephen Kuffel, my my good friend, and uh, I am a, a man I very much appreciate and admire, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today, brother. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. We're gonna we're gonna talk about something that uh, is talked about a lot today in our modern context, uh, but we're going to save a lot of the conversation about sort of our modern context for the second part of this discussion. So this will be a two-part episode or a two-part discussion talking about justice. In this first episode, we plan on talking about what the Bible says about justice. And then in the second episode, we will get into some of the modern ideas about justice and maybe sort of critique those or look at those through a biblical lens and ask where do they fall short and where what do they get right according to Scripture. Um, but I'm excited about that, but we are going to save that for the second part of this conversation. But let's just jump into the first part of this. And I, I, Stephen, I want to talk about, I want to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to talk about both the like the civic side of things and also the personal side of things. But maybe it would be most helpful to start with just maybe definitions, uh, because we're dealing with obviously different languages because we're speaking English, uh, but we've got Hebrew, and so we've got Hebrew ideas, uh, and also Greek. I know you're a big Septuagint guy, so we we also have we have the Greek language in there as well. So if we were to just sort of go back in time and we were talking with someone that was, first of all, in ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, and we were talking about justice, assuming we could understand one another. Uh, what what would what, what ideas would be part of that, and how would how could we sort of get some some handles on the idea of justice, and and what would that mean if you were an ancient Israelite? Do you think? Well, at the surface, I, I think they have kind of the same issue that we did. They use the same words in different ways. Uh, we we tend to think justice courtroom. And and absolutely, there there is an element of uh, the wicked being punished in the concept of justice. Um, but if if anybody has a chance to watch the Bible Project video on justice, they do a really good job of of looking past that into some of the deeper meanings of the word. Uh, the Greek word means to do the right thing, mm-hmm. and the way that it shows up throughout the Septuagint and the Hebrew word throughout the the Old Testament, uh, it's it's almost like the right thing is to recognize the human dignity that exists in another person. They're made in the image of God. And therefore, if they are oppressed, because they're made in God's image, they should not be. If they are poor, and and this is going to get definitely into the second discussion, if they are poor because they are made in God's image, they should not be. Those are inequities that in a perfect world would not exist. And justice is the writing of those. The I think the way they describe it, I, I really like the picture, was the the low brother reaching up, and the high reaching down, so that you're not you're you're lifting somebody up to an elevated position. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a, a perfect way to put it. And I love the way the Bible Project, because I also love that video, I love the way that it shows sort of, it uses sort of cardboard uh, type of animation, and it shows people on different levels and, and helping one another and or pushing one another down. And so human beings have this tendency to do what is unjust and unjust behavior pushes other people down. It disadvantages someone else so that you are advantaged. And that's what injustice does. It disadvantages someone else so that you are at at an advantage. And then justice writes those things. It puts things back the way that they're supposed to be. So I love that idea of doing the right thing. In fact, that brings up the related English word, which is righteousness. Um, And I think sometimes we tend to put righteousness and justice in these two different boxes and categories. And we tend to think that righteousness is like religious behavior and justice is our secular behavior. And so we we tend to think of justice as a secular word and righteous as a religious word. But in Scripture, of course, of course, especially in ancient Israel, there was no such thing as secular and religious. It was all your religious behavior, and it was all your. There, there was no secular behavior. It was all your duty towards one another was also your duty to God, and your responsibility to others was your responsibility to God. So, doing the right thing for another person was also doing the right thing in God's sight. So, so would you say? And and I've I've struggled with that even recently. Would you say that righteousness and justice are overlapping words or synonymous words, or how would you put that? The Greek will sometimes use the same word. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I definitely think they overlap. Uh, maybe even the same. Um, to do justice is to do righteousness, and that that's really cool when you kind of see those concepts merge in the New Testament text. Um, a plug for the Septuagint. You can see it a lot sooner if you use that. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 I agree with you. And part of my problem is that I have been taught that there is this uh, secular and religious divide, and Christians should not live that way. I, I don't know how to offer my life as a living sacrifice if I've got a dividing line where this is my secular life and this is my spiritual life. I, I don't see that division in the New Testament text. And so I, I agree with you. I think part of our problem is we try and separate those things out and we try and say, oh, well, well, this is the realm of the secular and I really can't do anything about that. And that's foreign. I think that that concept is foreign, especially to the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, where if we have a right view of ourselves as Christians, we are the new Israel in a sense. Now, we don't have national borders, uh, but we are this rock that is growing into the kingdom that covers the world. And within this community, there is no secular spiritual divide. And so however we are, whoever we are, it should be consistent. And and as we reach out into the world, uh, however you have access to Babylon, uh, however you interact with her, it should be in doing the right thing. And, and there's no excuse. Ultimately, I think we'll see as we go through the biblical text, there's no excuse for not doing justice and righteousness. That's who we should be. Is that, yeah. is that a fair thing to yeah. say? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In fact, and we'll get to the New Testament in a second, but I think about what Jesus says in Matthew 6 about seeking first the kingdom of God and his 
righteousness. And it's really struck me, um, and you you brought that out about even the way that the Greek word is used throughout the New Testament, but the way that even, even modern Jews will use the Hebrew word tzedakah, and, and that's the word that we translate as righteousness, but they see tzedakah as being um, what we might call charity, but in the Hebrew mind, um, it, it does, charity doesn't really get it because charity in our mind is voluntary. And when I say voluntary, I mean it is not a responsibility. There's no obligation. So when we act charitably towards somebody, there's no obligation to do it. In fact, if we thought there was an obligation, then we'd say, well, it's not really charity then because I'm obligated to do it. But in their mind, tzedakah is doing a benevolent thing, both because you want to and because it's your responsibility, because this this is what it looks like to live righteously, to live justly. And so that idea, that's one of the Hebrew words is tzedakah, and then another one is mishpat. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 15, it says, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice, mishpat, and equity, tzedakah, to all his people. Um, so we see, again, those ideas being so closely related uh, between justice and righteousness, or the ESV translates that as, as equity. Um, I, I just, I, I kind of broke out. I, I was reading through a couple of Tim Keller's articles recently and looking at the way he sort of breaks down uh, biblical justice, and I was thinking through all the things that the Old Testament has to say about justice or righteousness um, and, and what that looks like, both from a civil perspective and also from a personal perspective. And I just kind of, working from Tim Keller's list, but also sort of working through it personally myself— um, and and just wrote down some thoughts. So I'm I'm curious to hear uh, if if you would agree with these, or maybe you could add some to them, or maybe maybe I've I've put too many on my list. But so here's my list of what I think uh, biblical justice looks like, especially when you look at the at the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but that's it, and it's such a big subject, which is why this is hard to sort of break down a list. But but I I put down four things. One is personal accountability. Um, so we see that. Every individual is accountable before God and before the court um, for their sin. So Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers aren't to be put to death for their children, and the children shouldn't be put to death for their fathers. So personal accountability. Uh, another one is fairness, that that every individual must be judged by the same standards. And you kind of touched on this a second ago about seeing people as image bearers of God and giving them dignity and respect. So there was the expectation that if justice is carried out, then um, then someone can't be held to a different standard as someone else. There needs to be equal weights and equal measures. Uh, the third one is collective responsibility. And that's something I really want to dig into because I think we often miss that in our modern context is there's a collective responsibility, and things like the Day of Atonement uh, was, were, were an annual reminder that we we bear the responsibility of the community, and that the community has a, a job to play in our doing the right thing. Um, and so there's personal accountability, but there's also collective responsibility. And then fourth is generosity. Um, and again, that gets into that idea of tzedakah, that 
we have a responsibility uh, to be generous. We have an obligation to be generous. That if God gives us an abundance, then we have an we have responsibility to share with, especially the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, and the poor. And I think about texts like Deuteronomy twenty four about leaving the edges of the field, and and that that belongs to the the sojourner and the the widow. And so those are my four things. Um, and then we can kind of talk about how those things work out in these different areas of life, but personal accountability, fairness, collective responsibility, and generosity. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think about that list or what you would add to that or take away from that, Stephen. I think that's a great list. Um, I kind of think of that as fitting under, when I approach the Bible, I'm to be holy as the Lord is holy. Uh, We are made in his image, uh, and that's a really cool picture that uh, in a world that was full of idols and things that represented or were conduits or channels for gods into the the realm of the people who had them, we are that for the rest of creation. God should be seen through us. And as a select, elected, holy people, Israel and Christians um, were to be this image, this presentation of God to the rest of creation. And in this presentation is the holiness of God. And I think that underneath that that concept of divine holiness is this sense of justice with all those different layers that you mentioned and understanding that our, our willingness to be a just people is a direct reflection of this holiness of God, of being image bearers of, of God, then it should change the way that we approach other people. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing a kindness for somebody because it makes me feel good I'm not doing, I'm not helping somebody who is in a, a disadvantaged position at the moment um, because it makes them feel good. I mean, both of those things might be true, but it, it comes down to this, this identity. If I am who I claim to be, an image bearer for the creator of all things, then it, it is more than just this nice thing that I've done. It is how could you do anything else, right? right? How could you be anything else? Uh, or you fall short. You're not truly bearing the image of God in that moment. And yeah, I, that that's kind of how I think of it. But when you break down, what does it mean to be just? I like the way you did that. And I love that you pointed out that that connection between our identity, who we are, and how we're supposed to live. And and that was true of Israel, that because they were God's chosen people, because and I love the word you use, conduit. I love that idea of being a conduit for the blessings of God, but also the justice of God. And, and I don't mean to—I think sometimes we, when we think about justice, we only think of it as punitive, but— but I think that there's there's more to that. So being a conduit for the justice of God in in uh, calling out sin and wrongdoing and oppression, but also lifting up those who are oppressed. And that is both our privilege and our responsibility because we are the image bearers of God, a, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And so because of that identity that Israel had and now has been given to the church— um, that that's our that is our our privilege and our responsibility. But yeah, you're right. It's it's so much more than just doing nice things for people. It goes it goes far beyond that. So so with that in mind, and I think that I think that's a really good segue too, because God not only chose Israel as His chosen people, but then within Israel, um, 
God anointed certain people, whether that be prophets or priests or kings um, or or judges, uh, to administer justice. So what role did all of these facets of justice play in the in the civic life of Israel, um, and and how was that supposed to be carried out by the leaders, by the representatives, by the elders, by whomever God appointed? Uh, how was that supposed to be played out in the life of Israel? That's a good question. Uh, I guess let's start with the priests. Uh, one of the, they're probably the easiest, <laughs> and so you've got these people who uh, fall short. And one of the amazing things about the book of, Le- of Leviticus, when I read through it, there are a couple things that I'm struck with, is the, the holiness of God and the length to which God himself is willing to go to reestablish the relationship with a people who are continually rejecting him or continually falling short of what they ought to be uh, as this chosen nation. And so the priests, then, like you mentioned, the Day of Atonement, once a year, they're going to go in and they're going to go through this process that God put in place in order to cleanse uh, Israel. The sins are carried off outside the camp and to atone, to draw uh, at one again, where they will be brought into relationship with God again. And so there's, there's this sense in which justice is not, yes, it's, there's a punitive aspect to it. But it is more than that. True justice seeks to do more than punish, because then God would just be constantly punishing Israel. It seeks to reconcile. And when we tend to think of a legal system, uh, because of the way our legal system is, is almost strictly punitive, we do not tend to think of reconciliation as a part of the process of that legal justice. But when God presents that to us, that is an aspect that is critical When somebody wrongs me, I I should not be out to make sure they get theirs. I should be out to reconcile with them. And I've heard people say before, talking about things like forgiveness, which would be our kind of our picture of the role as priests, uh, mediation amongst uh, brothers and sisters. Um, I've heard people say before, well, I just can't forgive them until they ask for forgiveness. And that's a very punitive way. I I want them to humble themselves. I want them to grovel and come to me. Uh, and and that's not at all the picture <laughs> in the scriptures, but but there is this God reaching down to humanity, desperately wanting to lift them up. And as part of this reconciliation process, when there is any kind of a wrong, uh, that that is how we should be acting, uh, not not desiring that a, another wrong is inflicted on a human, but desiring reconciliation. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of one of the ways that I think of the priesthood. Yeah, I think that's so I think that's so rich and so good and in fact it I've taught through Leviticus a couple of times and you probably have the same experience when you teach something from Leviticus uh, the congregation kind of recoils and says that's such a weird book it's so bizarre or they'll say things like I'm I'm so glad we're not under the Old Testament anymore and you know and, and I agree obviously but but at the same time it's also beautiful because it's a book that's all about God wanting to dwell with his people God wanting to restore them so that he can be in relationship with them. And I think that, that that part of justice has to be a part of the way that we understand 
that that word about restoration and reconciliation and redemption this is this is a picture of god's of god's justice of biblical justice is putting as you said in the very beginning doing right and putting things right putting things back the way that they're supposed to be and so often so often when and again we'll get into this in the next episode but when i when when accountability happens when punishment happens somebody will say justice has been served and i kind of cringe because yes that's a part of justice but justice is so much more than that what would really be just is if the victim was no longer a victim if the victim if somebody was murdered <laughs> that they were brought back to life but we can't we can't carry that out but we can strive and the leaders of Israel were supposed to strive to put things right to whatever degree they could and then to call God in uh, to to help put things right in Israel yeah and and one of the pictures that we lose uh, sometimes and when I say we I really mean me is sometimes I forget what people are like if we take God out of the picture. yeah, Like my life before God was in the middle of everything uh, was not really headed in a great direction. You tend to be very selfish. You tend to, to focus on what is good for you. And then when you come to the law and it is very other oriented, uh, that is one of the things that strikes me when I read through the Old Testament. And so any concepts that we have of justice really isn't about what I get. It's about how I fit into this community how I work with and how I help those who are under me and how I look to those who are over me. And everybody in the community then is working through and with one another. And the reason why I bring that up now is because thinking about the law, I've often heard people say like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then they have this little pithy statement, well, you'll wind up with a nation full of blind people. And that's true. If you allow humans to meet out that punitive justice, Uh, What God had to do is God had to come and look at humanity and say, okay, if I left you alone, things would continually escalate and you would all kill each other. So he puts this framework in place to try and teach us that to forgive is greater than to mete out justice. Uh, Love covers a multitude of sins. And so this is the image that you have of God where, where you come to him in the temple through this Levitical priesthood. And it is God's love that is covering over the sins, not seeking punitive justice to the point where eventually we'll see that play out. And we can get into this when we go to the New Testament. But you have people who are scared of Saul when he first converts uh, to Christ. But eventually you have him worshiping and sitting next to perhaps people whose family members he had murdered. And so there is this intense, I mean, to borrow your word, radical, right? Just this radical otherness, uh, looking out to others, seeking the benefit of others. And that is really what struck me when I first became a believer and I started reading through the law, is it was actually the Old Testament that made me realize this isn't about me. Uh, A lot of people say they get that from the New Testament, and we should, that's there. But it was the Old Testament that opened my eyes and showed me, this is not about you. This is about God reaching down and lifting you up. And that should ripple through the the, the society, the culture, the community uh, that God is creating. Yeah. And and I and I love that. And I love that 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 picture of God being merciful and kind and and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that this is all throughout the Old Testament and was actually part of the law itself. And to that point of covering over both on a civic level. 
in the, within the courts, within the what the priests were doing, as well as what the judges were doing, uh, in covering over sin, in being merciful, that mercy and generosity and love and forgiveness are actually a part, an integral part of justice, that it's not there's justice and then there's mercy. Sometimes we talk about we we want God's mercy and not his justice. It's like, no, 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 his justice is merciful. It has always been merciful, and he expects that when we carry out justice, that it will also be merciful. And And I don't know what your perspective on this is, but but I think that a lot of the laws about retribution or the consequences of an action, like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, are meant to put restraints on punishment rather than saying, if somebody takes your eye, they have to lose their eye. It was more like, if they take your eye, you can't kill them. You can't burn their village down because that's what humans do. Humans not only make things even, they want to one-up one another, and you killed my brother, so now I'm going to slaughter your entire village. And and we see that being played out in the Old Testament, but the law was actually supposed to restrain that kind of behavior so that we don't, we don't kill each other's tribes. We don't have a Hatfields and McCoys type situation that goes on for generations because of a stolen pig. We 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 are merciful and kind to one another, and when punishment has to be doled out, it's only a punishment that actually fits the crime. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is the sons of Jacob and Shechem when he takes Dinah. The response is not, well, let's deal with Shechem. The response is, let's go kill all the men from their village. That's not an appropriate response, but that's humanity. If we're honest with ourselves, like you said, that is what humans do. And so God puts a limiting factor in place because he is love. We just studied, uh, we were going through, we're going through the gospel of John and we just looked at John eight and that woman who is caught in the act is brought before Jesus. And the, the religious leaders are there. They're the ones who bring her, they're in the temple. And they say, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And so I asked the question, when in all of the biblical text, all the Old Testament, yes, I can go to Deuteronomy, I can find the place where the law talks about these things, but where where in the narrative of the people of Israel can you find an example of somebody who has done this actually being stoned? The law doesn't give you what must happen when a wrong takes place. It gives you, like you said, it's the maximum. This is the maximum punishment. I think God expects his people to be merciful, to be to be kind. And I think you see that in Jesus. Jesus doesn't undo the law. Jesus just shows you that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think that's the message. That's what God is trying to show us. And left to ourselves, we're no better than the sons of Jacob in, in Genesis 34. Yeah. And maybe a good word here, too, as it applies to justice, especially from the perspective of leaders that were supposed to be meeting out justice and being instruments of justice. A, a good word, I think, is wisdom. And the Torah, the, the, the law, the law of Moses, was supposed to be training. In fact, that that I'm told that that's a good translation of Torah, is training, that this is meant to train 
leaders, especially the kings, the the judges, the the priests, to be wise leaders. The way we tend to think about law is we think we don't want our judges to be wise. In our criminal courts, we don't want our judges to exercise their own wisdom. We want them to just follow the letter of the law. This is what was done, and this is the consequences, and just meet that out. But God wanted the leaders of Israel to be wise in the way that they dealt with various matters that came up. So a good example is Solomon. When these two women come and there's this argument over whose child this is, who's lying, who's who has the living child, whose child has died, who's telling the truth, who's lying. And so he exercises wisdom. There was nothing in the law that said, okay, here's what you do when you have this kind of a situation. He had to be trained by the Torah to exercise wisdom and to know how to handle that situation and bring about justice. Yeah. Um, there's a book. I, I love your point. And, and to that, there's a book. I, it's called Hidden Riches. I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but I would recommend it to people who want to understand the old law better. Um, and he, he compares in a very positive way uh, it, the laws in ancient Israel, the 613 commandments, and he looks at, at other cultures. And he does that same thing. And, and that is how generally his argument is that that ancient Near Eastern law worked. It didn't work the way we set up our legal system where you do this and here's the punishment and here's the, you know, taking into account mens rea and all these different things. Uh, it's 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 a, a very constructed pathway down to ultimately the punishment. And an ancient Near Eastern law did not work that way. It worked through uh, training, like you're saying, training a judge to look at a situation and determine an appropriate uh, reconciliation, sometimes an appropriate punishment. And when we look through the law, that's what's supposed to happen with us too. You know, Jesus, Jesus is the embodiment of, of the Torah, and, and he doesn't come you know, he even says, I came not to judge. That's that's not why I have come. Uh, ultimately, there will be a judgment for those who reject him, but that is not what God's wisdom leads to. It leads to reconciliation. And, and sometimes, personally, I get caught up in my Western way of thinking, here's the crime, here's the punishment, and that whole grace and mercy gets left out. And so I miss the picture. Yeah. Yeah, we, I think we all do. I think that's exactly right. Another book to recommend, and, and it's kind of what shaped my thinking on that, is a book by John H. Walton. Um, and it's I think it's the hidden the hidden world of of the Torah, maybe. Um, but um, but yeah, he he's done a lot of as you said, comparing between ancient law and how ancient law was used. In fact, an interesting story as it pertains to that that um, some of the Grimm's fairy tales were actually written. I think they were mostly Germanic uh, type of fairy tales, and they were actually written to be stories to shape their their collective wisdom and to be used from a standpoint of of justice and carrying that out. And then when they moved from sort of that ancient way of doing law to a more modern way of doing law, they wanted to capture those fairy tales so that they could be passed on to future generations. But that 
a lot of wisdom and passing along of wisdom was done in narrative form, which is exactly what we find in the Torah is that most of it is narrative. And so these stories, they shape us to live wisely and act wisely. Uh, we're going to have to move on from from like the the civil part of it to even just a personal level. So let's just spend just a couple seconds or a couple minutes talking about from a personal level, if you were an ancient Israelite or an ancient Jew, um, what would it mean to do justice, to live righteously day to day? You're you're not a you're not a judge, you're not a a king, you're not a priest, you're just a Jewish person. But every Jewish person was expected to live righteously and to do justice day day to day. I like to think uh, I think of the Book of Ruth is one that stands out in my mind when I think of this. Uh, I love Boaz. Yes. Uh, Boaz finds himself in the middle of the time of judges, <laughs> and it's it's an awful time in the history of those people. And so here is this Moabite woman, this foreigner, and she comes into Israel ter- Israelite territory, and instead of shunning her because she is a foreigner, he does what the law requires. Right? He, he shows kindness to the foreigner, to the sojourner among him. And, and not only that, Right, right. The law required him to leave the uh, anything that fell during the harvest he couldn't pick up, anything along the edges he couldn't he couldn't harvest himself. The law required that, but instead of just saying, "Well, I have to leave the edges of the field," let her go. Let her go fight for that. He takes Ruth, and he brings her along his own workers, and he says, "You work with them." He commands people that he is paying. He says, "You make sure she has what she needs." He gives her the water, the supplies that he is providing. And so he's he, the story of Boaz is him constantly reaching out and down to this woman. And it culminates in him lifting her up so that she is now a part of, of this nation. She is a part of his family. And she's a part of the lineage ultimately that leads you to Jesus. And it's just such this powerful image of, of God reaching out to the outsider bringing them in, but not just bringing them in as like a second-class citizen, but of lifting her up to true equality. And in that image, in that, in that man, Boaz, I think you see a powerful image of God's sense of justice and really what I think he expected from every single Israelite. You see it there in him. Uh, I guess he's the, the quintessential or the epitome of, of what justice might look like in your life as an Israelite. I think that's a I think that's a perfect example. I think that's exactly right. And a way that that justice and again, we tend to think about justice as something, as you said, that happens in the courtroom, but justice is actually a practice and it's something that we do daily, that we live righteously, we do the right thing in any given situation. And it's not so much that we tend to think in in very binary ways, like this is either just or it's unjust. It's either good or it's bad. It's either right or it's wrong. Where it's it's more like there's a spectrum where you could technically be leaving the edges of your field, but how much of the edges? And you know, and and how much do I have to give? But but Boaz goes to he he practices generosity because generosity is part of of justice. And so often we want to know what's the bare minimum that I can get away with or what's the maximum penalty I can I can impress on somebody, and that's not justice. 
it, we, we should be the kind of people that go as far in the righteous direction as, as humanly possible to say, how much can I give? How generous can I be? How much can I lift up someone? Um, and to, to disadvantage, I, I love the idea, uh, someone said that, that, especially as you look at the book of Proverbs, that the idea of righteousness, the righteous person, tzaddik, a, a righteous person is someone who disadvantages themselves in order to advantage others. And a wicked person is someone who disadvantages others in order to advantage themselves. And and really, if we're looking for the line and saying, how close can I get without stepping over and being wicked, we've already gone over the line. That's already the wrong the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. Yeah. And and speaking from my for myself, that tends to be the way that we approach the Bible because that is the way our culture programs us. And that's not, you know, that's not saying anything negative against our culture. Very, very grateful for the place I live, for the people that I have always been around. But we do have to recognize the times and places where our culture does not match who God wants us to be. And that the way you describe that is, you know, how close can I get to that line? Or, or what do I have to do to technically be doing what God said? Uh, you know, how, how big do I have to build the parapet? I have to put a, a wall on the second story of my home, but is three inches enough? Technically, it's there. And so I think you're right. That's a powerful way to illustrate that. How much of my field do I have to leave? Boaz made the whole field available, and that's powerful. Yeah. How much does God love us? Does he love us just barely enough to get us in, or does he adopt us as sons? What does he do? And so it's powerful. I, I like the way you... Uh, pictured that. Well, and I think that that reflects to your point about putting a railing on your on your second story. I think that reflects the way that that people like Paul righteously read the law. When you think about the application that he makes in passages like 1 Corinthians 9, when he's talking about taking care of these ministers of the gospel, he uses a passage about the ox treading out the grain, and he says, you don't muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. And, and did that He's not, I don't think, saying that didn't literally apply to oxen, because I think it did literally apply to oxen, but he says you ought to make broader applications than that, because it's not just the ox that God is concerned about. He's concerned about human beings, and if you wouldn't do that to your ox, you shouldn't do that to your servant, and if you wouldn't do that to your servant, you shouldn't do that to your brother, and we should apply this to all these areas, and if we learn to read Scripture that way, where we're trying to be trained to live righteous lives— then, then you know, and again, that helps us to transition to the New Testament and to see Jesus in all of this talk about justice and righteousness. Yeah. In the law, I think it's called a fortiori. I'm sure I slaughtered the pronunciation, but it's this idea that you move from a position to something stronger, like a, a weaker argument to a stronger argument, like you said with the ox. If that's true with the ox, then it's definitely true with a human. Uh, with a slave, you know, if a slave is abused by his master and he loses his tooth, he gets to go free. Well, what about if, if the master cuts his fingers off? The law doesn't say anything about that. So is Moses telling Israel, you better not knock a tooth out, but you can cut a leg off? Or is Moses saying, if you bring any harm to the slave, they get to go free? Recognizing in an unprecedented way the humanity of that person. Yes, they, they happen to be in this disadvantaged position, but it's almost like the law is there waiting 
for the opportunity to pull them up out of that to the point where if you're a conscientious Israelite, you should recognize that if the law sees the humanity of that person, then perhaps they shouldn't be a slave at all. And, and that's, that is where you're moving. Right? I like the way you described it as mostly narrative. I mean, that's the direction the narrative moves is where we were all slaves to sin. But when God comes and looks at us, he sets us free because that's what justice does. I, I like that. I like the way you well, and, and, and that. that. And I think that that's a good way to segue to the gospel itself, because when you look at things like the year of Jubilee, that was, as far as we know, not really practiced in Israel, but part of the law, that there are supposed to be these periods of release. You release everyone's debt, you set all the slaves free, everything goes back, there's this grand reset to everything, um, then, then that's, that generosity, that community belonging, all of those those elements are part of what real justice looks like, which means that if that wasn't actually practiced in Israel, then there was always an element of injustice that was present because the land was always supposed to revert back and it, the, the slaves were always supposed to be set free. But then when you get, I think, to the New Testament, I think this is exactly where we see Jesus coming in and we see the righteousness and justice of God in that Jesus brings the ultimate and final year of Jubilee so that that even now, and I like the idea of the already and not yet aspects of the kingdom, that we are already, in a sense, living in a perpetual year of Jubilee because of what Jesus has done for us. So let's talk for just a minute about how we see the justice and the righteousness of God displayed in the gospel, and then maybe we'll talk about how we live that out as individual Christians. Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the amazing things about the gospel— is the more that I kind of get a feel for the text itself and for the things that are being said, the less I see myself in any of the stories as anything other than somebody who is the slave, the, the powerless one, the oppressed. Because that's what sin does. You, you are a slave to sin in the domain of darkness, held under bondage. And if it were not, like you said, for the year of Jubilee, you would never be free. You can't you can't earn money. You can't do anything to get yourself out. And there are there are places where, or I have learned to understand the text differently than I used to. Like in Romans chapter one and verse sixteen, I'm gonna quote that real quick, uh, where he says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." And I used to read that, and I used to to say, "Okay, the gospel: hear, repent, believe, confess, and be baptized." And now I've done those things, so now I'm saved. And, and I'm learning to read that to hear it differently. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom that there is a king, a benevolent king, which will kind of link back to the the question that you had or uh, about the king and his role. And so, the good news is that God is powerful to save. And that's that's throughout the prophets, right? God is mighty to save. And so that's what Paul is saying, I think, in Romans 1.16. The good news is that God is mighty to save, and he offers this salvation to everyone. And so no matter who you are, Jew or Greek, you're all oppressed by sin. You're all in bondage to, to, to your debt to sin, and God comes and sets you free. And so really the gospel message is not that I have done anything. It's that God has done everything. And yeah, there is some response, like we talked about different levels of responsibility. You know, I have to be a willing subject of this kingdom. But at the end of the day, 
I'm not free because of anything that I have done. I'm free because of Jubilee, what God has done. Yeah. No, that's so beautiful. And and I, I think that if we would learn to talk about the gospel that way, uh, we, we really could be more, I think, exactly what evangelist or evangelistic should imply, that we are good news proclaimers. I, I love the idea that the good news is not the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. <laughs> we are making an announcement. This is who our God is, and this is what he's done. And I think that if we would learn to read the word righteousness, especially in, in books like Romans, as justice, that this is the justice of God. This is what the justice of God looks like. It is merciful. It is gracious. And in the in the good news of Jesus, in his reign as king, we see the, the justice of God, the righteous of, of God, righteousness of God demonstrated and made manifest. This is what the good news is all about. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It, we then, tend... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. I didn't mean to step on you. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we tend to kind of revert back to what we were talking about at the beginning with this very legal image. Uh, and there is some legal imagery in the New Testament, but that tends to be, again, pointing at myself for a long time where I stopped. And that's just not the full picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and two, I think that we—I've always pictured the gospel as Wes McAdams is on trial, and I'm guilty, and then Jesus personally takes my place. But again, that doesn't reflect biblical justice, because biblical justice, yes, is about personal accountability, but it's also about collective responsibility, and it's about God being generous toward mankind, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that Jesus' sacrifice of atonement is dealing with our sins collectively. So, like, even the whole idea that I deserve to be nailed to a Roman cross— like, that's a little much to me. And then, like, Jesus took Wes's place personally. Again, that's making the gospel so individualistic and not understanding it as Jesus' collective act of mercy towards all who receive his his love and, and grace. And, and, and for those who don't, he sacrificed himself even for them. And then that, that we become a part of this redeemed community. And then as we continue to think about righteousness and justice, then as as people who have made who have been accepted by God, who have been justified and, and have been set free from that bondage, that oppression to sin and death that we were talking about, now we are to live in righteousness and holiness. So let's talk about that just real briefly, because I think that will segue into next week's episode really well. But but what does that look like for us to live righteously, justly today. If it doesn't shock you, you're not doing it right. Mm. Uh, that That is one of the things, like reading through the gospel accounts, I'll find myself coming across things that Jesus says and excusing myself. Like he'll, with the rich young ruler, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. <laughs> I've done that. And he, he very legally goes to the 10 and he starts walking through the 10. You know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And uh, when Jesus starts reciting those things, I imagine that Jesus is going to keep going. I don't think he's going to recite the Ten Commandments and stop, or he's going to use it as a teaching moment to kind of illuminate, hey, here's what these things really mean. But he gets interrupted, and the guy says, I've done all that. You know, I I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus turns to him and says, but there you lack this one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy balks. Why? <laughs> because... He doesn't want justice. 
He doesn't want this sense of uh, losing his elevated position. And there's, there's kind of this conundrum, this, this weird picture in James, I think it's James one. Uh, let me look real quick. Yeah. Let the James one, nine and 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So the gospel exalts the, the low and humiliates the rich or the powerful. It's, it's this equalizer. And what we tend not to like with a very individualistic picture of things is we don't like equalization. We, we don't ever want people to reach us, and we certainly don't want ourselves to move backwards. We want to constantly be moving forward, getting more, getting bigger, like the guy building bigger barns. Uh, I, I, I connect really well uh, to my shame, to the barn builder, to the rich young ruler, to the scribes and the Pharisees, because I think that is kind of who we culturally are. Uh, and perhaps all cultures, human cultures have always been that way. Uh, but when Jesus comes and says, hey, this isn't about storing treasure on earth. It's about storing treasure in heaven. Well, then why in the world do I store so much stuff? Why, why do I go rent storage facilities to keep my stuff in because my house isn't big enough? You know, why am I doing this? Why am I not selling those things and giving it away? Why am I not finding people who need it? Why, why, do, I, why do I keep buying a new car every year when I don't need to? And, and so there's all these questions, and I'm, I'm not passing judgment on anybody, um, but we, we do have to look at our life and say, what am I doing? And am I truly living as though all of these things aren't mine? They belong to God. They've kind of been leased to me. And with the year of Jubilee, everything would get reset. Really, it's supposed to show you this isn't your stuff. Well, if this isn't my stuff, what, what would be the problem with sharing it? I'm not giving up anything that's mine. I'm, I'm letting somebody else use my father's things. And so Jesus, when he comes and he kind of talks to you about this personal interaction, it's shocking. It should be shocking. It is the, the polar opposite, almost, of the way that worldly people of whom I am chief, uh, think about their stuff. And uh, I, I think it's a powerful statement. You cannot serve God and mammon. And one of my favorite commentators, I, could, I wish I could remember who he was, he just worded it, you can't serve God and your stuff. That's powerful. Yeah, it is. And and, it, and it's. I think it's so evident that this is why this is the struggle of righteousness. This is the struggle of righteous living. It's not between God and Satan. It's between God and mammon. It's between God and yeah. treasure. And this is this is the struggle that we have. And, and why Jesus would say, and we've sort of taken the sting out of his statement, and I love the way you said, if it doesn't shock you, you're not, you're not reading it right, you're not doing it right, is that Jesus says that it's easier for the camel, a camel, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom because it is so very difficult when we have things, when we are the people that are on top, to, to recognize the good news of all of this, that righteousness is coming, and we get to be a part of being right and living right and doing right and setting things right, um, and why the poor have always been the ones that have latched onto the gospel the most readily, and, and why the rich have been, and that that's us, it's the, the people that we're looking in the mirror when we say that, that it's been the most difficult for us because this is it's hard to live this out. 
Well, this has been really rich, Stephen. I appreciate this. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed this, and I think it's going to be a great uh, introduction to what we're going to talk about in the next episode. So thank you, brother. Yes, thank you for having me. I really hope you enjoyed this Bible study, and I hope you'll subscribe to hear future episodes of the podcast. A big thank you to Travis Pauly, as well as our McDermott Road Church family for helping to make this podcast possible. And a special thanks to all of you for listening. We love you, God loves you, and we hope you have a wonderful day.